How y'all doing? It's a good song, wasn't it? <laughs> um, y'all, so it started to feel a little bit like spring, and then this happened this week. <laughs> uh, I hope y'all enjoyed Nettleton last week. I thought he was great. Uh, I loved having him here. He's a good friend of mine. Um, Sorry about that Duke loss, Ugh. or not the Duke loss, but the UNC loss. <laughs> I'm glad for the Duke loss. <laughs> um, yeah, so this, this semester we're talking some about Acts, talking a lot about uh, what does it mean to respond to Jesus' life? What does it mean to know Jesus? How does that affect our relationships? How does it affect our work? How does it affect our purpose in life? Uh, the book of Acts is written because it's the apostles' response to the purpose of Jesus' life. And it redirects the whole purpose of their lives. And as we read it, I hope that it would redirect our purpose of our lives too. Not that we would just kind of be doing a bunch of things, but that we'd be motivated from the heart out of love for what Jesus has done for us. So tonight we're going to talk about Acts 10, 23 through 43. Um, I don't talk a ton about... Uh, um, maybe I should take that back. I don't feel like I talk a ton about my life uh, up here. <laughs> um, and so some of y'all may not know this, but until I was 17, I was an atheist. Um, and even though I grew up in kind of the bu- buckle of the Bible Belt in Alabama, I grew up in a family that believed in God, I went to church every Sunday, I just kind of thought the whole thing was ridiculous. And the songs felt phony, and the prayers felt empty. And I would have been willing to talk maybe about faith and religion, but I didn't feel like I knew anybody that was really maybe safe that I could talk those things about. Um, I always had this fear that if I were to let people know that I was an atheist, that I would wake up the next morning and there'd be like this prayer circle in my front yard. Or like some kid would like bump into me and like hand me a bunch of tracks or something like that. I didn't want any part of that. Uh, (laughs) And so when I think back to that time, two things really stand out to me is shaping the sense that it is not okay for me to talk about this stuff with Christians. Like These are like, barriers for me. Uh, one of them was on the highway outside of Montgomery, about two hours north of where I grew up. Um, I grew up in a small town called Dothan in Alabama. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we would drive up this highway about once a year, or twice a year, yes, and we'd drive there. There's this big, beautiful house in the background, big green pasture. You can't see it really that well, but there's a water wheel right there. And then there's this giant sign that says, go to church or the devil will get you. Uh, I don't know what that person was thinking. I'm not, not really going to draw a lot of people in with that one. Uh, I also remember at Halloween every year, one of the local churches would put on a judgment house, which was, yeah, there we go, which is kind of this Christian like alternative to Halloween haunted house. Uh, to name something judgment house is probably not like a seeker friendly thing. Uh, but we would go into it, and it'd be, like, instead of a haunted house, like, where there's, like, ghosts or witches or, I don't know, werewolves or ghouls or, like, that guy with the chainsaw that, like, is jumping out and, like, scaring people, uh, there would be a prom couple. And uh, it, would, it was kind of the same sort of story every year where it's a prom couple, like, she's a Christian, he's not a Christian, they go to prom, they drink a bunch after prom, they get into a car accident, they die, and, like, you see, like, you walk with them through the afterlife, and so, like... You go to hell, and it's dark, and it's scary, it's really humid, it's hot, there's like people kind of touching you. I use it as a chance to like grab the girl next to me, her hand, and like work something. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> uh, and then you would kind of, you kind of jump into like heaven, and there'd be like a lot of like cheesy things like this, uh, where like 
that 12-year-old kid doesn't want to be there, man, let him go. Let him go home. He wants to watch cartoons. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, and there'd be people with, like, eating with, like, a guy with a beard. You'd think it was Jesus, and he had, like, it'd be gold plates and stuff. Um, and at the end, if you weren't a Christian, they kind of pull you aside, and you're supposed to, like, they would try to, like, convert you on the spot. Uh, so, obviously, those were some, like, of the worst examples of Christianity that I grew up with. Thankfully, most of my experiences were generally positive. And, I mean, clearly, God has worked in my life. I'm a Christian pastor now. But I tell those stories because sometimes when Christians think about what are things, like, what are obstacles, what are barriers that keep the gospel from going out or that keep people from coming in to, like, the church or coming into a community group or a small group or RUF or whatever, people want to point the finger out there, right? Like, the culture is becoming more secularized. Uh, there's the breakdown of the nuclear family. Like, no, like, people don't have dads anymore, so, like, no one's becoming a Christian or no one gets a church or the big enemy in the world, Tim Keller points this out, that the big enemy in the world in the West has moved from, like, atheist, communist to religious extremist, uh, this changes the conversation for people who are trying to talk about their faith, right? Like, Because the per- perception is that the people who are most fired up about religion are the most dangerous people. Or you can look at things that other Christians do and you kind of like smack yourself on the forehead. Like when Christian, weird Christians do evangelism, think pit preacher, uh, not doing us a lot of favors. Or there's Christian scandals, right? Like that, that church out there or that really high-profile pastor where someone embezzles money or someone uh, commits adultery, like that doesn't help. Or there's inflammatory figures like Westboro Baptist Church, things like that. And those things may be true, but is that where Christians need to start? Like, why can't we reach the world? Because of all those people out there, because of those things out there, those weirdos. Now, I think where we need to start is this. We need to start with self-analysis. How do I obstruct mission? Because really, I'm the only one that can control anything here. Like, I control myself. I don't control social institutions. I don't control where the culture is going. Like, you can influence those to some degree. But the only person you can control is you. The trouble is that we can lack kind of the motivation here. That either there's fear or there's a lack of love for for people out there. We lack these things that we need to get involved in mission. So tonight we're going to talk about two things. What in me, what in Simon Stokes, what in all of us, is the barrier to mission? And how does that barrier come down? What in me is the barrier to mission? And then how does that barrier come down? So a little background on this passage before we get into it. Um, It's a long story. We're jumping into it in kind of the middle of things. Basically what's happening here is there's a man in Caesarea on the coast of Israel named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. And he's neither a Christian or a Jew. He's a Gentile. And what he is, he's, he's called kind of a God-fear, which is actually kind of a technical term for that time, which basically means that he's someone who's very interested in the God of the Bible. He's very interested in knowing who he is, what he's about, what he's doing. But he hasn't full-on converted to Judaism, and he doesn't know about Jesus. So this man is there, and an angel comes to him, and he says, Hey, send for a God named Peter, and... Talk to him, and he will point you the direction to who God is. And so the guy sends, sends for Peter. Meanwhile, Peter's up on his roof. He's having his quiet time, his devotional. He's a good dude. And uh, <laughs> that's not the measure of what a Christian is. But he's, he's doing, he's basically, he's in prayer. He's on a roof. And he has this vision where this sheet comes down from heaven, and it's full of like pigs and snakes and creepy crawly things. 
And this voice tells Peter, like, Peter, you need to eat this. Eat this, whatever's in the sheet. And Peter's like, ugh, no. <laughs> um, he says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Like, that stuff is stuff that Jews of that day didn't eat. Because the Old Testament laws were in place that said, like, if you're a Jew, you don't eat the, like, you don't eat pigs, you don't eat snakes, things like that. But the very next thing that happens is a voice, that same voice tells him to eat because... What God has made clean, don't call common. And the very next thing that happens is that Cornelius' guys show up and a light bulb kind of goes off from Peter's head. That something here has changed, that God has said, what was unclean before, I'm now welcoming into my kingdom. I want you to be a part of. And this is a light bulb for Peter and for the rest of the early Jewish Christian church because they realize that the full extent of God's mission is for the whole world. That the gospel is for everyone. And that what is going to snag this for them and for us is not out there, but it's in here. It's in our hearts. So let's read Acts 10, 23 through 43. We'll get started. So the next day he, that's Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what had happened through all, all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, apart from your word, uh, everything we know about you is just something that we have made up or you found in ourselves. But Lord, your word guides us in truth and it guides us to who you are. Lord, in Jesus, your word became carnate and we see, uh, we see you in him and we see your power, we see your mercy, we see your goodness. So Lord, I pray that through your word we would see the word, the one true and living God, your son Jesus. Lord, that he would draw us to himself in his wisdom and his power and his goodness. Lord, that he would make us righteous with him. Lord, that he would call us to justice and to peace. Lord, that he would call us to him. And your sons, and we pray. Amen. So what's the barrier here? What's the barrier for Peter? What might it look like for us? 
You know, Peter is someone who's raised in a devout first century Jewish family. And the expectation there was that, you know, if you're someone who cared about God, if you're someone who cared about God's Word, then you don't associate with non-Jews, you don't associate with non-Jewish things. And Peter's struggle here is that God has called him to love the people around him. His struggle here is that he's called to love the people uh, who are not part of his who are not part of his language, who are not part of his culture, who are not part of like his family, who don't speak like he speaks, who don't act like he acts, who don't believe like he believes. And can we pause here and say, you know, that may be my problem as well. Because we will huddle up, if we're not careful, with PLUs, with people like us. Um, we will huddle up with people who act like us, who talk like us, who dress like us. Uh, and it's in some ways natural because those are the people you get along the most with. But we're also called to love people who are very different from us, who don't talk like us, who don't act like us, who don't believe like us. We're called to go out and be with those people. And sociologists said this, that the way that America is today, that it's hard for educated middle to upper middle class people to get out of their bubble. Like even when we live right on top of one another like we do at UNC, that if you're an American and you're at UNC then I would guarantee that at the top of maybe your values is the sense of, like, I need to like, have my schedule, I need to have my privacy, I need to like, be able to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. And next to that is kind of busyness. Like, I barely have time to take care of myself, I barely have time to do all my internship, I barely have time to do my work. Of course I don't have time for other people in my life. You know, do we want to live intentional lives? Do we want to be like, disciplined and like, plan things? Like, yes. Like, of course we need structure. But we just don't leave a lot of buffers in our time, do we? And we schedule other people out. Like if the only people that you schedule in are the PLUs, the people like us, then of course it's going to be hard to do mission. Or of course it's going to be hard to love that person who doesn't act like you or dress like you. Like busyness plus the sense that my schedule is very, very important and has to be followed. It's hard to, hard to have a welcoming attitude towards people. Very hard to do. Um... I think the biggest offender in all this, though, is kind of this maybe an us versus them mentality. Like there are like there are good people and there are bad people, and every people group, every religious group, every culture does this. Like it's a human thing. Like everyone does this. But and I say this as a Christian, like man, we can really wield this thing. Non Christians, I think, are right to say that if you take the Bible seriously and you can't find something about yourself to repent about from it, then I don't want to hear this. If the application of Bible studies and personal devotion is always outside of the room, like, that's not good. Like, those things have to start with us. Like, you can't read your Bible and say, well, all those people out there need to get their act together. Like, the better way to read it is to say, Lord, I really lack a lot of love, and I don't have my act together. Will you help me? Will you teach me how to love you? Will you teach me how to love the people in my life? I need your help in that. I think that's where the first application for our Bible studies, for our large groups, for our personal times with the Lord should be. You know, at times, uh, Christians, and I point the finger at myself too in this, have hypocritically read the Bible and applied it to everyone but themselves. Proverbs 8 uh, has kind of this list of abominations, like not just like things that God doesn't like, but things that God really doesn't like, abominations. Do you know what the first thing on that is? It's haughty eyes. It's pride. 
That's the thing that God finds most abominable. And at times, Christians have read things about sexual sin or about Psalm 14, about how those who don't believe in God are fools, and said, get away from those people. And then they read Proverbs 8, and they say, well, there's grace for sinners. And the world sees that and is rightly disgusted. And what we need in this is to start with ourselves and to see, Lord, I need your help to love people. I need your help to repent like, what's the solution here? Where do we go from here? Like, where we tend to go with this is, okay, if the problem is I need to get better with my time, I need to get better with my schedule, and get, like, schedule more, like, non-PLUs, non-people like me into my life, like, then I need to be more intentional, right? Like, scheduling, though, scheduling is not the problem. Because behind all of this is a lack of love. That I don't want to love other people. Like, the reason I walk around campus with my iPod stuck in my ears is because I don't want to love other people. I just want to be in my own world and not have to say hey to people because that might be awkward. Um, my dance card is full. I hardly see the people I like, like let alone have time for people outside of that circle. Let's focus here on the importance of our desires because you can know tons, but at the end of the day, you will do what you love. And part of loving God, loving the Lord, is to own stuff like this. And to kneel before God and say, in real honesty, like, God, I don't care about these people. Help me. Confess these things. Repent to the, to the Lord in these things. Look at what Peter says here in verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has told me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Peter here is dying to his emphasis on his own culture. He's dying to his love of the, the person like himself. Like a Roman centurion is not a PLU for Peter. But Peter is in his house. He's talking to him probably in Latin. Like Israel at this time is kind of a multicultural, multilingual place. Latin or Greek is probably what Peter's talking in. But Peter is a native Hebrew speaker. Like he, need, like he like needs to be able to talk to this guy where he's at. Peter's also dying to his own schedule. Like Peter like, left his quiet time, he left his devotional, he had probably plans for the rest of his day, and he gets down off the roof and he goes out and he follows these guys. But look also at what Cornelius says to Peter here in verse 31. Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. Cornelius is a guy who prays. He's a guy who gives money to good things. And yet he doesn't actually know God. But what God is doing here is he's honoring the truth that this man does know. And what does he do when he honors that? He doesn't just give this guy a pass and say, you know, you're trying hard, you're a decent guy, like, come on in. He sends Cornelius Peter to tell him the gospel. Because it's only through Jesus that Cornelius and his family can actually come in to God's kingdom. It's only through the gospel that Cornelius and his family can actually know who God is. And when Peter comes to him and finally speak, he doesn't shy away from telling Cornelius about both the truth and the grace of the gospel. Look at verse 42 here. Peter's talking and he's saying, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Like Peter doesn't shy away from the truth that one day everyone is going to have to stand before God and give an account of their life. And that all of us are broken, all of us are sinful, 
Like none of us stands up there with a perfect record. And what we need is we need forgiveness for those sins. We need God to look at us and say, I don't look at you as you are right now. I look at you through Jesus. Peter is very willing to tell the truth to this guy because he needs to hear that truth. But Peter also tells him the grace. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter tells him, one day, to believe in Jesus means that you will stand before God and God will smile at you. And He will look at you as someone who has no sin. As someone who has done everything well. As someone who is perfect because they come with a perfect record of Jesus. You see, the way that God answers a person's prayer, that they would know Him. Or that they would know truth. Is by sending that person someone to tell them the good news. They send them the Word. They send them Christians in their life to love them where they are. And I can say that personally, personally, as someone who has not always been on the inside of Christianity, but who is an atheist for the majority of my life still at this point, that everything about the gospel is good, both the truth and the grace of it. And I'm glad that I heard it all. I needed that. You know, it's right that you would want to love people who don't know the truth of Jesus and not be awkward with them and not be mean with them. That kind of shove things down their throat. That's right. God sends you out to do that. But it's not loving to gloss over the fact that apart from Jesus, all of us are cut off from God. Even our very moral, non-Christian friend. You know, my dad has spent most of his adult life as a radiological oncologist. He's a cancer doctor. He has to tell people very uncomfortable truths about their lives. Things that, I mean, at times devastate them. You know, to tell someone, like, you have cancer, and unless you get treatment for this, you're going to die, that's a hard thing to tell somebody. That's probably not a fun conversation to have. But it's good for him to tell them that. It would be horrible if he was a doctor and he just kind of smiled at them and walked by them and said, oh, you're fine. Things are doing well here. Carry on with your disease. That would be a really terrible thing for him to do. And something that I think we should all consider for ourselves is that maybe part of why God has called us to Carolina, to our classes, to all the organizations and clubs that we're a part of, is that God might be answering someone's prayer that they would know Him and know His truth and know the goodness of who He is. That it's good for you to share the good news with people. Not in a weird way, not in a mean way, but to gloss over the truth of this, especially for, for me that apart from faith and the saving work of Jesus, we all stand condemned, that's not loving. It's like knowing someone has a terrible disease and that rather than helping them find the cure, you let that person die. And I know this can be hard. Like I say this as like a Bible guy. Like This is hard for me too. But I'll say this. The greatest prison that people live in is the prison of what other people think of you. The greatest, people that pe greatest prison that people live in is the prison of what other people think of you. And when we fear people and what they would think of us, it can feel like prison. We can fear rejection, we can fear alienation, inadequacy, awkwardness, losing friendships, being perceived as closed-minded or being arrogant. And we give in to fear by making excuses that we'll avoid having to have a conversation about Jesus. Or we'll be get too busy, so we kind of cut all these people out. Or we do nothing, or we intentionally avoid people, or we get really cynical and say, you know, that atheist over there can't be saved when he can. Fear becomes an all-consuming enterprise. 
And the fear in our lives can be contrary to what we say we believe about God and the gospel. But the antidote for fear is this. Is that Jesus left what was comfortable to him. What was easy for him. And he befriended people who were not like him. Who didn't speak his language. Who weren't easy to get along with. Who didn't dress like he dressed. And he loved those people. He wasn't just their friend, but he loved them to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And that God is kind. And that Jesus dies for people who are afraid. That Jesus dies for people who don't love easily. Of which I am first and foremost. And so I would say repent and own that fear. Don't try to deny that fear. Own it and say, you know, this is a part of my heart. Lord, help me. Because God's constant refrain in the scriptures is, do not be afraid, I am with you. And God walks with you in places that are hard. He walks with you in friendships that are hard. He walks with you when you're afraid and when you don't love Him well and when you're cold to Him. He is that good because He leaves His comfort to love people. You know, mission is all about participation with Christ. It's not about running towards awkwardness. It's not running, about running towards rejection. It's about running to love people like Jesus did. And to do that is to run to Jesus. Run after the one who has loved you, who has cared for you, who has died for you on a cross. You know, is the answer for us to like, I just need to schedule more people in? I think that's part of it. But start with Jesus. Like, what is it that makes me right? Because it's not the sin that you're not doing. And it's not the approval of friends or family. But what makes you right is Jesus' work for you. Like, where does the punishment for my lack of love go? It goes to Jesus. Where does the fact that sometimes I lie to people to their face go? It goes to Jesus. There is now no more condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus' work, God looks at you and He smiles. And He sings over you. And He delights in you. And He pays the penalty for your lack of love. And He doesn't just take you like back to zero so that you start over so you can kind of work your way up. But He gives you Himself. He gives you all of His riches, all of His health, all of His beauty, all of His goodness. So that when God looks at you, you don't stand there at zero. You stand there in Jesus, which is everything. He pays for your sin and He gives you everything. And yes, you're called to share the gospel. But what you're called to share is God's delight. You're called to share God's forgiveness. You're called to share God's love that He's poured first and foremost into your heart. You're not in a pressure cooker. You're not. I just want to take all that pressure off of you. You're in a relationship with your Father in Heaven. And you're His child. And if you want to grow, and if you want to love people well, then focus on that. That Jesus has died for you, He has risen for you, and He is with you and for you, and He does not leave you. And that is good news. So let's pray. Father, thank You for Your kindness to us. That You move in our hearts. Lord, that even when we sin against You, when we're cold towards You, when we're cold towards our neighbors, God, that You help us. Lord, that You heal us. That You give us Your Son, Jesus. Lord, that You give us Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You move in our hearts so that we would know what You've done for us. So that we would love and be loved by others. God, I pray that You would be with us in Your presence and Your power this week and forevermore. In Your Son's name I pray. Amen.